Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage for today comes from Luke 18, verse 35 to 43. Listen for what God is saying to you. As Jesus came to Jericho, a certain blind man was sitting beside the road begging. When the man heard the crowd passing by, he asked what was happening. And they told him, Jesus the Nazarene is passing by. The blind man shouted, Jesus, son of David, show me mercy. Those leading the procession scolded him, telling him to be quiet. But he shouted even louder, Son of David, show me mercy. Jesus stopped and called for the man to be brought to him. When he was present, Jesus asked, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, I want to see. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. At once he was able to see, and he began to follow Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they praised God too. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of this scripture. Let's join together in a word of prayer. God, we give you thanks for the gift that it is to come together on a day like today on it, um, and to uh, be the kind of community that um, welcomes one another, challenges one another, and opens ourselves as much as we possibly can to the work that you are trying to do within us. Ready our hearts to hear what you have to say to us today. Help to clear away the clutter of our minds so that we can be present and responsive and um, transformed by what you are trying to say to us today. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So about a month ago, uh, most of you know a story broke about Harvey Weinstein, uh, the powerful film producer who had sexually assaulted women to a broad range of degrees. Dozens of women carried stories of violations that had spanned at least 30 years. And after the story came out, it was almost as if the floodgates had opened, right? Since October 5th, at least 25 other prominent men have been publicly named and accused of the same range of violations. Politicians, producers, priests, and more. Powerful people whose true victim count remains unknown because we only know about the people who stood up and dared to tell their stories. Women in the full flower of their age, boys and girls as young as 13, 14 years old, well-known celebrities and people no one has ever heard of who for years, decades, had been silenced by shame, threats, fear, confusion, bad theology, grief. People who had harbored their stories like a thorn that had burrowed deep within their psyches and souls. And they went on trying to live life like nothing had happened, shouting, nothing to see here, folks, as their insides rusted away. 
People wondered why their careers stalled, why they seemed to have anger issues, why they were so defensive or standoffish. Five years, 10 years, 40 years, they kept their stories to themselves because they knew just how inconvenient their stories were, how they would make people uncomfortable, defensive, accusing. So they kept their mouths shut. But then a few brave women opened them and the world tilted just enough, just enough, giving way to an avalanche of uncomfortable, inconvenient stories. The voices of mostly inconsequential people shouting a troublesome truth from the edges um, that, of, our, uh, of our social, economic, and political realities, threatening all of those things. What do we do with disturbing stories that trouble our consciences, make us uncomfortable, defensive, or accusing? How do we respond to the people who tell them? Well, our passage for today gives us some clues about that. Here we see another kind of inconvenient truth emerging from the edges of a grand parade headed toward Jerusalem. Jesus, in the fullness of his influence, is on his way to the center of Jerusalem, to the center of power. And the author of Luke, they've been kind of building an arc since the beginning of chapter 18. You see, before the passage we read at the beginning of the chapter, there was the story of a, of a widow who repeatedly goes to the local judge asking him to take up her case. He relents and gives her a hearing so that he can be done with her. And she is finally granted the justice that she demands. And then there's the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee is very public about his piety while the tax collector pled to God for mercy. Whose prayer brought them closer to God's purposes? The one who stood on the corner and proclaimed their worthiness or the one who asked God to help them do better and better? Jesus says it was the latter. Then there was the story of the children who people tried to shoo away, but Jesus said, bring them to me because these little ones who just can't hold themselves back, these are the ones who are the model for faithful living. And this was followed by the story of a rich young man who had done all the right things, checked off all the right practices on his list, and then turned away with sorrow in his heart when Jesus told him that if he really wanted to be part of what God was doing in the world, he had to give up his money. Stories and stories about who is in and who is out, about inconvenient truths and uncomfortable facts, about power turned upside down and assumptions turned inside out, about who gets it and who misses the point entirely. And here today we read the story of this blind man, nobody, relegated to the side of the street. And as the procession approaches, he sees something that all the people with the seeing eyes can't see. He shouts out, Jesus, son of David, show me mercy. Quiet, the people at the front scold. We are important people doing important things, and you are a nobody doing nothing. And on this side of resurrection, it can be hard to grasp that what our blind man shouts not as just, isn't just an inconvenient truth, but it's also a dangerous one. To call someone son of David was another kind of way, a kind of slang way of saying that someone was the Messiah. And not just any old Messiah, right? But the Messiah who will return the people of Israel to the power and dominance of when David was king. It was a truth that could put the whole enterprise of what Jesus was doing and everyone connected to him in danger. It was a truth that spoke direct opposition to the Roman Empire, a threat that would be taken very, very seriously. A modern-day equivalent might be something like saying you have a bomb on your person when you're going through airport security. 
So the folks in front are in, on high alert when they hear him shout, Jesus, son of David. And maybe they didn't even catch the last part, right? And the blind man surely knows what he is doing, but he ain't here for them, right? He's here for the son of David, and he won't be silenced. So he shouts louder over their heads and beyond their rank, breaking lockstep, the lockstep of their march toward Jerusalem. Jesus, son of David, show me mercy. The procession comes to a halt. And this is important to understand. While everyone is blowing off this man, ignoring him as they walk by, pretending they didn't hear him, Jesus, the guy that everyone's following, stops the whole thing and says, now what do you want? Lord, I want to see, he says. Which is ironic, right? Because all the people in the crowd, of all the people in the crowd, he's the one who sees the clearest. Receive your sight, Jesus says. Your faith has healed you. And now before I get to my main point, there's this one thing that I feel like I need to make clear. Jesus says, your faith has healed you, which is how we get a lot of bad, horrible, and abusive theology, where we end up hearing people say things like, you must have not been faithful enough. That's why you're dying of cancer. Or you can't give up that addiction, or all the bad things are happening in your life. This is not what Jesus means when he's talking about faith. He's not talking so much about what you believe in your heart. He's talking about how what you believe in your heart leads you to do. Say that again. He's not talking so much about how much you believe in your heart, but so, more so about what you, how what you believe in your heart leads you to do, prompts you to act. The persistent widow the tax collector who prays for mercy, the children who can't hold themselves back from gathering around Jesus, the rich man who turns away, the blind man who won't be silenced. These are stories not just about matters of the heart. They are about how our hearts lead us to act. Your faith has healed you isn't about how deeply you believe. It's that you didn't let your shame or anxiety or fear of ostracization prevent you from pushing through and doing the difficult, courageous, but faithful thing. And because he refused to stay silent, even when everyone around him was trying to get him to shut his mouth, the blind man was finally heard, and he was finally healed. It was the persistence fueled by faith that Jesus is, is uh, praising. But like I said, that's not what I want to emphasize today. What I want to emphasize today is that the work of God, the ministry of Jesus, is not about processions toward power, or the quickest, most efficient way to get the job done. Much to my chagrin. (laughs) The ministry of Jesus is about people. Healing, reconciling, and restoring people toward the healing, reconciliation, and restoration of creation. And so when Jesus hears someone cry out, even though it's super inconvenient, especially if he hears them continuing to cry out, Jesus is going to totally pause and give this guy the time to be heard. The kingdom of God takes our lives and our stories seriously, whether you're a somebody or a nobody, a blind beggar or a rich young ruler. Your life and your story matters. And stories, as I said a few weeks ago, actually, are how we defeat evil. Relationships are inefficient. But the goal of God's work is not efficiency. And I'm going to say it again because many of us are busy people with busy lives and full schedules. Jesus was not about efficiency. Jesus is about relationships and restoring humanity, all of which is deeply inefficient. This is what the kingdom of God is built on, beloved community. 
And even as he's making his way toward his final days and has a super important date with a cross and a tomb, Jesus isn't too busy to respond to someone who's asking for help. He is here to bring about the kingdom of God, which means taking time and making space, even when it's inconvenient and unexpected. And so who are we if we are not here for one another? What kind of community are we if we start shushing each other when someone has something to say, even when it's something we don't want to hear? A dangerous, inconvenient, unflattering truth. Being together, being community with and for one another, this is one way that we make the kingdom of God happen here and now. In a way, that's what we're trying to engage in with these caucusing conversations to give space and time for inconvenient truths, for for messy thoughts to make their way out so we can deal with them in a real way. About a year ago, many of us gathered in this space for a special worship service. Folks were reeling from the results of the presidential election. They felt a cloud of security dissipate. It was a It was a a service where people shared stories of of their personal anguish and anger, of concern and fear for the students that they served, of wondering how to be in relationship with family members who had voted against their well-being. And since that time, uh, when the world felt like it had turned upside down, it, it seemed like it never really turned right side up. Since that time, white supremacists have been emboldened, workplace protections for LGBTQ identifying people have been stripped away, and then the stories... So many stories, too many stories, first from women, then from men who were once boys, violated and told to stay silent. Stories of people weighed down by power and suppressed memories. It's tempting to be overcome by despair, to throw up your hands and give in. But of course, if that's what we did, none of us would be gathered here today. In spite of how disheartening this last year has been, we gather here together because we are a people who follow a tradition fueled by a tenacious, enduring, and audacious hope. We live in a world that tries to tyrannize us into living out of fear, anxiety, and despair. But every time we show up here, every time we gather in community to claim and proclaim Jesus' gospel of wholeness of life for all, we are all actively resisting that spiritual tyranny. The hope we gather around as Christians is not cheap or easy. It isn't a compromised hope or even a delayed hope. It is a present, persistent, and bold It's the kind of hope that takes time and makes space for one another, a hope that can handle our painful experiences, our inconvenient truths, and our uncomfortable realities. It's a hope that is strong enough to contend with what these experiences, truths, and realities demand of us. It means we can feel the pain and grief and fear and shame embedded through those stories and weep together and not be embarrassed not feel ashamed that we were weak or that we feel things. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that when prophets weep, when the prophets weep, it's a radical criticism. When we weep, we acknowledge that things are not as they should be. When we weep, we expose the world for its false facades and image-making and inadequate solutions. When we weep, we commit to ourselves And we also demonstrate to one another that it's okay to be human, 
to feel the things that hard truths and painful realities make us feel. When we weep, even it's a hopeful act, a prophetic statement that says, I can still be human in an inhuman world. And so we live as hopeful people with eyes wide open and hearts so vulnerable, making room for inconvenient, uncomfortable truths and feeling the pain of this world, becoming angry, weeping, and refusing to allow ourselves to shut down, numb, or distance ourselves from our pain. In this moment, in this pause on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus shows us a different way. Take time. Make space for one another. From the most of these to the least of those, this is the fabric of God's kingdom. When we do this, we join Jesus in the march toward Jerusalem, a march that is laced with life and possibility and a bold hope. A bold hope that says our present circumstances do not dictate the terms of our future. A bold hope that reads our current moment in history as the demolition of faulty structures, clearing the way for something more sound and true. Our hope, Christian hope, is the kind that sees our world for what it is, enters the pain, and comes out saying, your faith has healed you. Our hope, Christian hope, is a prophetic act because it proclaims and invests in a different destiny, sowing seeds for a future that we may never even see. We are living off the prophetic hope that was planted generations before us. Think about that. And so as we harvest that hope, we also sow seeds for those who will follow after us who need that hope. Prophets of a bold hope and a future that is not our own. It helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives include everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water the seeds already planted knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing this. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We, never, we may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own.